Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time to uh, consider these very important matters, how the gospel relates to them uh, for us. And Father, we thank you for Gordon taking time to uh, be with us and share uh, wisdom and insight from your word and from his experience. And we pray that you would work through him in our lives during this time as we come here today with uh, maybe questions, maybe struggles uh, related to life in general or related to the subject matter. We ask that you would guide and direct us into your truth. We thank you, Lord, today as, uh, as every day for sending a redeemer for us, a rescuer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for allowing us to have uh, full righteousness before you through the gift of his righteousness. And Lord, we pray that we'd walk in that identity. We'd worship you in that identity. We'd grow in that identity um, in you this morning. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks, Anybody need a packet? It's a little um, interesting talking about sexuality on a Sunday morning in an elementary school. <laughs> I just got done doing a similar thing at Cahaba Park, and we did it at, a, I think, a high school in the library. So um, it has its challenges. I was glad that this room was at least a little bit warmer than where I did it with Cahaba Park. Um, the session this morning really works better to, to follow the sermon, but the sermon is more general and good for a larger audience, so we're actually doing uh, the second session first, if that makes sense, okay? During the sermon, I'm going to talk about three different types of sexuality. In our culture, we glorify simply the two parts of sexuality, and we don't talk about the third that we're going to talk about this morning. The three different kinds of sexuality, the first kind is what we're going to talk about this morning, gender sexuality. When it says that we were created as a man or a woman, what does that mean and how we are to relate? Okay? Um, and I'll say more about that in a second. But the first uh, part, first type of sexuality is gender sexuality. The scriptures call us to live as men and women, not just biologically, but relationally, personally, spiritually. Okay? The second type of sexuality is erotic sexuality, all right? That's when, in a mysterious way, we feel a little bit more of a passion to go past normal boundaries with another person. That is supposed to be reserved for marital sexuality. And you know passages like, if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. We can um, experience erotic sexuality outside the context of marriage, but that's a second type of sexuality. And then the third type of sexuality is genital sexuality, the acts of sex themselves, okay? Our culture glorifies erotic and genital sexuality and doesn't really think well about gender sexuality. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you've got a handout, you can go to page two. And I have a verse there from Genesis you're probably familiar with at the top. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Larry Crabb says this. It's your first paragraph there. Could it be, I wondered, that masculinity and femininity have something to do with how men and women relate in human community? How they relate by the Spirit's power in ways that correspond to how the Father and Son relate in divine community. I'm going to hop down to the second paragraph here. This is Crabb again from his book, Fully Alive. He says, 
Perhaps the physical shape of a woman's body is a kind of a parable or picture of the spiritual shape of a woman's soul. Could femininity have something to do with a woman who is relationally open to receive? Our likeness to God is not just physical. God is a spiritual being. Three persons who relate together, not physically, but personally. We reflect him most clearly as we relate together as persons. A feminine woman is a woman who relates in a particular way. She is open to receive others who come to her. And pushing the image further, she warmly and pleasurably surrounds those who she receives. She invites movement toward her and embraces the movement she receives. If relational femininity is displayed in a woman who is open to receive godly movement and longs to nourish godly movement, relational masculinity is revealed in a man who remembers God's story and moves to advance its plot. Until a man mirrors, however stumblingly, the relational movement of the God who never forgets his covenant and never stops moving in costly love, the man will never know what it means to be fully alive in his masculinity for the glory of God. The courage required of a man to stay warmly involved with someone whose problems he cannot fix is in short supply. When I had Larry Crabb in class, he drew on the board a picture. He said, this is the shape of a woman's soul, and this is the shape of a man's soul. That our physical bodies actually, actually mirror something about how we're to relate uh, personally. All right? I want you to think for a second. I think marriage is a really good way to think about gender simply because of its challenge. All right? To, first of all, relate with someone other than you has challenges. Those of you who are married know this. My wife does not process the same way I do. The best example I could use is actually an example that involves our sexuality. All right? Um, as we continued to have sex, after we had children, I felt like the kids are asleep. They're in the other room. They're not in here with us. That is not how my wife experienced it. It felt to her like with the kids in the house that they were almost in there with us. She, could not, she cannot compartmentalize the same way I can compartmentalize. Oftentimes when men and women are having a conversation... A woman's in that conversation, and she's in four conversations back here, and the seven conversations you haven't yet had, okay? There's a difference in how men and women can compartmentalize, all right? That's just a difference. Now, marriage shows the uniqueness of our genders because of the otherness, but also because of the ongoing nature of it, all right? It's easy to love someone when you can see them and then not see them and get away from them. It's much more difficult to love someone for a long period of time. All right. So so I think the commands to the husband and wife in the New Testament are a good representation of what we struggle with as men and women in relationship. All right. So to the husband, it says, treat your wife with understanding, sacrifice for your wife as Christ did for the church. What it's saying is, men, you have to learn relationally. And this is a sexual term. How to stay erect. Man, your tendency is going to be to withdraw in relationship or to hide. All right? But to stay tenderly strong and erect, man, is a challenge. You have to learn how to be involved relationally. If you're doing the gospel, 
meaning you're walking out repentance, you're growing in the gospel, as a man, you become more relationally involved. I'll give you a simple little example. I'm playing with my daughters. We go outside. This is when they were much younger. We go outside to play wiffle ball. I loved playing wiffle ball as a kid on the street growing up, and I thought, I'll get my girls outside playing wiffle ball. The other kids in the neighborhood will come, and they'll have the same experience I had. We ended up being the only people that played wiffle ball on the street. All right, But the first time we're playing wiffle ball, as I'm getting more and more frustrated, that my daughters are not learning the game because I wanted to teach them how you run to first base and second base and how to swing the bat. They they were not there to learn baseball. They were there to have fun. And after about 20 minutes where we were all getting more frustrated and they were starting to get afraid, the Holy Spirit said to me, Gordon, the purpose of this is more to connect with your daughters. Like you don't have to teach them baseball. And I went from being overly strong to being crazy with them. And I started running to second base instead of first base. And we ended up having a lot more fun, all right, by simply the purpose of that being more to connect. I shifted midway through and became more relationally involved with my daughters, all right? So I think what's hard for a man is to treat other people with understanding and to learn how to be sacrificial and stay involved in relationship, Okay? If we look at the commands to the woman, there's three big words to, the, to wives in the New Testament. All right? It's uh, respect your husbands, submit to your husbands, and to do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Stay strong. What's harder for a woman relationally, respect really means to appreciate. A good word in art like, as your husband stays involved, learn to appreciate him and then Submit is cooperate with him. It's hard for you to stay open. Uh, Relational wounds will hurt you a little bit deeper. And it's harder for you to stay open and supportive and surround the people in your world. I would say, whether it's a husband or, or friends, for a woman to not turn away from relationship or to become controlling in relationship, but to stay warmly involved where you're surrounding the people you're in relationship with is a challenge to a woman. To me, the commands to a husband and a wife picture what is difficult for men and women in relationship. All right? That's all I say in that second paragraph. You can turn the page if you're following along. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is try to flesh out. If, if, if we're to be thoughtful about how to relate better as a man and a woman, if we're to grow in our gendered sexuality, how do we do that? And what does that look like? And, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes we're making in our culture is to not be thoughtful about what it means to be a man and a woman. I'll give you a quick example. I'll talk more about this later tonight. But we will tell, you know, all, the majority of you know the issues with the Internet and how that might be an issue for a young boy, okay? And that you want to make sure that you're protecting your son on the Internet. But all we do is help boys say no And how many of you are teaching your sons what it means to be tenderly involved? Think about this passage, Psalm 103. God is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate. There were years as a dad where I felt guilty for some of my compassion as a father until I saw that scripturally. I was never encouraged, never encouraged. As a young boy, up until the time I went away and studied under Larry Crabb, I was never encouraged to nurture my tenderness. Okay? 
But if you're not teaching your boys how to relate with more tenderness and how to connect relationally, then you can tell them to say no all you want, and they're not going to have the power to say no. We have to say yes and no. I'll talk more about that tonight. But just think about what it would mean to teach a young boy how to become more relationally involved. If you're doing that, you're helping him say no to pornography, even though it has nothing to do with pornography. It has everything to do with pornography. Okay? I want us to be thoughtful the rest of our time this morning. What does it mean to live better as a man or a woman? The way the scriptures teach. Okay? So the first point I have there... Um, We're going to come back to the case studies. The first point I have there is that we must accept that we all experience and demonstrate sexual brokenness. This is Dan Allender. The point is simple and disturbing. Every human being on this earth struggles with sexual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are contrary to love and in conflict with the (coughs) holiness of God. We can either pretend that a few struggle with sexual problems that don't tempt the rest of us, or we can openly acknowledge that all humanity is caught up in sexual wars that must be engaged if we are truly to be human. Okay? First point is we have to accept that all of us, somewhere, are experiencing sexual brokenness. And the more we can be honest about that, the more we're creating communities where our sexuality is being redeemed. Where we're bringing our brokenness to the Lord and then we're growing up in our sexuality and we're expressing more redemptive relating. Okay? So let's think about our first case study. If you hop back up to the top of the page, I have a little snippet about Anne. Say this. Anne is a 37-year-old single female. She has a degree in finance and an MBA and has steadily climbed the ladder with Regents Bank. She has several good friends and used to be the one who regularly planned get-togethers, usually at her house, but lately has found more joy gardening. She is regularly plagued by fear and guilt that she is too much for any man and should not be withdrawing from her friends as much. The picture I'm painting of Anne is that she's been very successful, which has caused her a little bit of guilt because it doesn't feel like that's as feminine. And she's in a very masculine um, career in general. And she's starting to shut down, pulling away from her friends. Now, if you were to talk to Anne and say... Are you sexually broken? She would say, I'm not sexually broken. I don't, I'm not doing anything wrong sexually. Because she's thinking in the category of erotic sexuality or genital sexuality. And what I would say to Anne is, you are incredibly broken because you've hardened your heart and pulled away from relationship. And you don't know how to be supportive and involved relationally. Okay? Um, I might, if I was talking with Anne, and she, and I would get her to tell some stories about her day, all right? And she might talk about a, a relationship with one of her coworkers. And let's say she just simply tells a story about a coworker. And as I begin to uncover what's going on, I help Anne see that you've moved away from that coworker, like you're so focused on staying within the lines and accomplishing what you need to in your job that you can't take five minutes out to move toward this person and be more relationally involved. All right? So she would have to see that in the way she's growing in her femininity, that in some of her disappointment, that she's shut up inside and isn't as involved and as warm as she wants to be. Okay? Does that make any sense? A little bit? All right. Let's talk about Jim then. All right? Jim is a 40-year-old partner with a big law firm in town. 
He has been married for 14 years and has uh, four children, ages 12, 10, 8, and 4. He is very involved in his church as a deacon and a Sunday school teacher. He is regularly plagued by frustration and guilt that his wife seems too stressed and his periodic struggles with masturbation and or viewing pornography don't seem to be getting better. Jim's 40-year-old, has four kids, all right? He's involved in a lot of good things, but relationally, he doesn't really know what to do with his wife, and he feels guilt over pornography and masturbation. Jim's problem is when he thinks about life, all he feels is sexually broken. If I said to Jim, I was talking to him and talking about his marriage, and said to Jim, you have really good things to give your wife, he would look down in shame and probably pull back in the conversation. I've met with many, many couples. And oftentimes when a couple comes in, right, usually the wife will initiate the conversation. And if it, let's say it's, they've been in a very challenging marriage, she will talk for a while about how bad the marriage is, and mostly it will be about how bad he is. And then oftentimes he just says, I don't know what to do. All right? Jim's like all he feels is sexually broken and and largely he's thinking about the pornography too. Like if he's done it, he feels guilty and if he's not done it, he's worried about doing it again. And the majority of his uh, thoughts sexually are about how broken he is. And Jim can't see at all some of the ways he's grown in loving his wife and some of the ways he's grown in loving his boys because he's so owned by sexual brokenness. If we are going to move towards more redemptive relating, we have to, in our communities, we have to be more honest about our sexual brokenness. And the crazy thing is, sexuality is hard to talk about it because it's intrinsic. The the reason evil, and you'll hear more of this uh, in the sermon this morning, our sexuality is really simply our energy to know and be known. It's the very thing that propels us out into Christian community to know others and to know God. If the evil one can attack us in our sexuality and keep our shame locked up, then we stay more shut down as people and as believers. We've got to have communities where we're more honest, where we see our brokenness and we discuss it so that the gospel's working and helping us move towards more. Before I move on, any, any questions? We have enough time just on that simple that we're all sexually broken. Anybody? Alright, we can move on. Remember, the path towards life-giving sexuality is relational, involving a constellation of factors, and one must resist compartmentalization and behaviorism. Okay, hopefully the way I talk about it, those words will make sense. I know there's some big words in there. But our path towards sanctification, towards change, is always relational. Alright? We have to resist compartmentalizing personal change or making personal change about behaviorism. All right? I want to read the passage I have down there first. Okay? This is this. That's the italicized part at the bottom of your page. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. 
I will say this. One of the things we can do well in the church is if we find out that there's sexual sin, sexual things going on, whether it's relationally, like an emotional affair, or pornography, we tend to do a really good job, or a better job, of about setting up boundaries and compartmentalizing. And so... And, and these are really holy and beautiful things, like having, if you're not familiar, having covenant eyes on your computer. That's a means of grace to help someone who has a problem with pornography or sexual addiction. They can have three people get reports of their Internet behavior, and it brings that discussion into community where the sexual brokenness is being talked about. That is a good and holy thing to do. But oftentimes, that's all we do. All right? I will talk about these passages later tonight when we talk about children. But when it says, flee youthful lust, it then says, do this and get more involved in Christian community where you're growing in tenderheartedness and relationship. We compartmentalize and say, no, no, no. And we don't help people learn to say, yes, yes, yes. Okay? So, if I um, am working with a fellow who has a sexual addiction problem, I certainly, one of the first things we do, because it's very practical and very wise, is set up some boundaries like covenant eyes, all right? But then I want him to think about what nourishing relationships do you have in your life? And where are you kind of getting reciprocal relationships where you're talking about your brokenness and someone's encouraging you or you're speaking into someone else's life, if you're not learning to do that, then you're not getting some buoyancy that will help you to say no. We tend to compartmentalize too much. All right. Oftentimes when I'm meeting with someone who has a pornography addiction, sometimes they'll get a little frustrated on why am I not just telling them no, no, no. You guys, it feels very comfortable to beat ourselves up with shame. And I don't, there needs to be good shame about sin and sorrow and grief. But sometimes that's all we do in our compartmentalization. All right. Um, Let's hop. If you would just go back to page three, I want to read the first quote and then we'll talk about some examples. Okay. Being created, a sexual person demands much more of us than a mere assent to a set of rules about sexual behavior and standards. It involves our very being and how we live in relationship to others. In authentic sexual interaction, we are mutually responsible for building mature relationships that bring forth the best in both. When we compartmentalize rather than integrate our sexuality, we risk irresponsibility. So let's talk about our two people, the case studies, and try to flesh out what does this actually look like not compartmentalizing, all right? So Anne is the Regent Bank employee who's really compartmentalized her life, all right? And she doesn't see that she's sexually broken. So I'm talking with her, and she tells me the story about how she always used to have her friends over and that she's not getting together with her friends as much. And as I begin to talk with her, she talks about how it got tiring to always be the one who was hosting things. And as we dug a little bit deeper and I asked Anne, why doesn't she go to things she's invited to she begins to see how she has a level of control in the way she relates. And she feels more vulnerable when she's the one receiving. And we just begin to, and and I would never be explicitly sexual about this, 
in general, but I would say, what I'm trying to say to Anne is, I want you to be more open to receive. And at some level, that's a feminine term for her. What you don't see, Anne, is you're guiding your life where you stay in control and you're giving or you're doing, and you don't have any capacity simply to be open and receive. And I'm trying to help her think more largely about how we grow as sexual beings instead of just compartmentalizing it. All right? And so, I would want Anne, too, to think about um, the men in her environment. And this may sound strange and may even sound unbiblical, but I would actually want her to begin to experience more connection with the men in her environment. And this may even seem stranger, but if I'm working with Anne, and she begins to soften, and she begins to have some desires again to be connected to people and not just be so busy and working, she may actually begin to experience some lustfulness that she hasn't experienced. Now, again, this may sound crazy, but I would actually say that that's good. Because the way she was living so dutifully that she wasn't seeing any of the sin in her heart. And now that she's actually more open and longing and desiring to be closer to people, she's beginning to struggle with some temptation she didn't think was even there. But she was so shut down and so unuseful in some ways relationally to God's kingdom that the evil one didn't have to tempt her. Now that she's opening up and longing and wanting more, now she's struggling with a temptation and she has an opportunity to go deeper into the gospel and deeper into God's forgiveness. All right? That's all in the category of helping her learn to not simply compartmentalize or just simply... See, she doesn't even see her sinfulness because she's so behaviorally oriented. Orientated. Okay? Um, if, yeah. How, how do you balance that with the admonition to flee temptation? It sounds like you're counseling her to run into temptation. Let me say two things. Um, first of all, I'm counseling her to see her Phariseeism, that she actually, the way she was living, she didn't even see she was sinful. And oftentimes, as we mature up into the gospel, we see sin that was never there. Okay? And also, and see, she was following, I'm going to flee useful lusts, I'm going to flee useful lusts. And she followed that right into some behaviorism where she's not really preaching the gospel simply in the way she lives, by giving and receiving the best parts of her. And I'm saying as she is more open to doing that, she begins to see her sexual brokenness. She wasn't even realizing her sexual brokenness. It comes out actually as she's moving up. I don't know if this would make sense. I don't think I'm encouraging her to become more of a sinner. I'm encouraging her more to grow. And as she grows up in the gospel, she will see sin in her heart that wasn't there. I mean, I'll be perfectly frank with you. I never struggled with any, I mean, any type of masturbation or um, sexual temptation, stuff like that, prior to falling in love with my wife. Now, the seven years, I was converted at like 18. I met my wife at about 26. The seven years before I met her, I said the reason I didn't date or do anything because I was serious about God. I didn't see how afraid I was of women. Okay? And I didn't see how self-righteous I was and how many people I didn't love that I could have loved. And actually, as I began to open up to my wife and, and love her, temptations began to come to me that had never been a part of my life. And I believe it was because I was growing. Because I was moving ahead, evil was beginning to tempt me in ways that now I had to fight that temptation to grow into more holiness. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. I'm certainly not encouraging 
someone to sin more. I'm encouraging them to live in a way that they grow more godliness, but along that path, they will realize sin that was in them that they didn't see. Remember, the Pharisees didn't think they had any sin, and Jesus said the problem is you, you look at the outward and feel okay, and you're not dealing with inward stuff. All right? Anybody else? Any other? Okay. Um, let's move on to the third point, and then um, we may come back to an example of Jim. All right? Just on page four. We must affirm the beauty of desire and live by faith in the tension it creates. A mature believer who wants all good things, a mature believer is someone who wants all good things and at the same time can wait for them to be granted. Deeply embedded within each one of us is a divine longing for wholeness that sends us reaching beyond ourselves to God and others. Sexual desire helps us recognize our incompleteness as human being and causes us to seek others to find a fuller meaning in life. Our sexuality generates creative energy and capacity for relationship growth and change. How unfortunate it would be if sexual attraction were only a restless biological urge for sexual release. In that case, we would be deprived of the greater satisfaction of deeper emotional relating. Okay? So our desire, even though it's connected to our sexuality, is also connected to the way we relate to others, our gendered sexuality. All right? Now, let's think about Anne, all right, who has shut down her longings. I think one of the hardest things to be in Birmingham, Alabama, is a single woman in the church. Because of the loneliness that we were not made for, that such a person experiences. And oftentimes, if a woman is open to a desire to wanting to be married, not being chosen feels like rejection. I will work with a single woman and let's say she has set down some to her desire to be married. All right. And she's a little bit like Anne, where she's not hasn't thought about or desired or talked about wanting to be married in a number of years. And I really think we idolize marriage. And that's a that's a separate issue. That's a real problem in our Christian culture. But I simply talk to Anne about her desire and say, do you want to be married? And she's like, I don't even want to go there. But I actually want her to feel some sorrow and some sense that I really do long for more. I hope that that would be a husband. But to just be open and wanting more means at times I'm going to think about my longing and desire to be married. If I'm going to begin to desire deeper relationships and to move into more uh, connected community, at times that longing for a husband is going to come up. What I have to learn how to do is want all good things And at the same time, wait for those to unfold. Realize, you guys, if what you want is really, really good, that's a picture of the gospel. As believers, I think maturity as a believer is to want everything good and at the same time to wait for it to unfold. Because one day you're going to have all that's good. I want you to look at this verse I have from Luke 11. It's the italicized middle thing in in the middle. But I tell you this. Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks the door will be opened. 
You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? If they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Do you see how this passage connects the longing, staying open and hungering and desire to God's desire to give us good things? Okay? Do you see God's desire to give us good things is is connected to our desire to staying open to taste really good things? I don't know if this example will make sense, but... When I had girls, I realized that I had a choice in front of me, that I could love my girls wildly and passionately and become incredibly connected to them. And then one day I could weep when they love a man more than me and I'm not as important in their life. And that, my friends, is happening as we speak. Okay. I remember dropping my Oldest daughter off at Mississippi College. We dropped her off. The rest of the family got in the car. As we were driving away, my middle daughter said, we just leave her here? And we're like, kind of what we do. And I wept all the way home. And the next day, I was in church about 15 minutes, and I left. And I had to drive all the way around Homewood to our old house and to the high school. And I wept and wept. Here's what I thought. I wanted everything for that girl. And she's a beautiful girl. And we had a beautiful love in our family. But we also fell short. See, the hard thing about really wanting good things in this world is we didn't go to Grand Canyon. And there was other things we didn't do. And there was ways I sinned against her that I had to let go to continue loving her and to stay open to all the good that God has in the future. But guys, if we're going to be love and be alive as a church, we have to want all good things. That gets us into trouble sometimes. Our desires will get us into trouble. They're broken. But if we don't try to stay open to them, talking about them, and being redeemed as a people, then not only will we not be alive sexually, we will not be alive personally. And we will not love the way God wants us to love. All right? Let's pray. We've got to stop, I think. Lord, I know these are large categories. And even talking about sexuality... Because of shame and all the stuff, it's, it's a hard thing, Lord. But we don't want to back away. Father, we want to try to move into it to learn your truth and your heart. And just pray whatever was honorable, right, and true that we talked about, I just pray that you would use it to your glory in our lives, Father. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.